What's going on, everybody? Welcome to yet another episode of Nothing Matters. I'm your host, Mike Postalakis. Now, it's been about a month since episode two. I know that's a long time between episodes. I've, uh, I've had stuff to say. I've just been too lazy to say them. How about that? But I, uh, I am working on having another episode up for you next week. A lot of stuff going on in the uh, in the world today. None of it good, which seems to be uh, 2020's brand. Um, but the thing I'm, I'm going to try and cover next week is, uh, and this is kind of why I've taken a minute, because I want to make sure that I'm sort of clear on what I'm saying and, you know, I've got uh, facts to back them up or... Stuff of that. Uh, well, so here's the thing. I feel like for the last couple of years, and and there's been a Georgetown University poll from two years ago that would support this, where a lot of people feel like, oh my God, we're we're heading towards a civil war, and you know you or or they'll say Trump is going to lead us to a civil war. And I guess what my feelings are is that I, it's now time to sort of drop the we're heading notion. I think we're there. And I'll go, like I said, I'll go into this more next week. And I'll try and make it funny as best as I can of a un, very unfunny situation. But uh, yeah, those are my feelings that it's, it's already begun. And what you see in Wisconsin, I mean, even the, the fucking guy, the guy, he's a kid, Kyle Rittenhouse's lawyer has, you know, um, compared him to, oh God, what's that guy's name? Lexington Green, who was the guy who fired the first shot at the American Revolution. So that's a, that's a different war, but uh, it doesn't matter. They're all... It's all bad. And I think when people think of a civil war, we think of like red coats, blue coats, sort of, you know, marching on lawns. And, uh, you know, they've, they've got sort of remnants of a British accent, you know, so they're just like, oh, let's, we're having a war. It's like, that's not what it's going to be like. It's going to look like Wisconsin. And we have a president who seems to be encouraging it. We have a media on both sides of the aisle clearly stoking the flames of insurrection. So that's what we're going to talk about next week. This week is a little more fun. I did an interview with somebody who I consider a, a bit of an American hero. His name is Luther Campbell also known as Uncle Luke, from the, um, you know, the legendary Miami hip-hop group, Two Live Crew. Um, For those of you who don't remember or are new to this or whatever, but Luther and his bandmates in Two Live Crew were once arrested for performing what was deemed obscene material in front of adults. Their album 
1989's As Nasty As They Want to Be uh, was considered uh, obscene and it was banned for a short time. They performed the songs in, at, a, at a club in, my, in uh, not Miami, but uh, Hollywood, Florida called Club Futura that, was, uh, that had a bunch of undercover cops. They got arrested. Luke ended up fighting the case. It went all the way to the Supreme Court. And luckily for us and for him, uh, he won. And that was 30 years ago. So I talked to Luke about this. This piece uh, was supposed to be for Spin Magazine, but they've, they decided not to run it for whatever reason. I, I know the reason, but it doesn't matter. And uh, so I thought I'd just share the interview uh, with you listeners. It's very good. It goes into his backstory of growing up in Miami, what Miami was like decades ago, how it is a true, it's not really the South, it's a true melting pot of Jamaicans and Puerto Ricans and, and people from the Caribbean, and, but also plenty of white folk who don't want to hear uh, his brand of music. It's about how the hip-hop community did not come to support him. It's about uh, what he was feeling about, you know, feeling towards the trial and stuff like that. It's a great interview. He has a lot to say. He's a, clearly a very intelligent, very learned man. He could probably pass the bar at this point and become a lawyer. Um, but he has decided instead to sort of dabble in local politics, which I think is admirable and very smart. People just always seem to focus on the biggest stage possible, but truly the things where things get fucked up the most are at the local level. Um, but, you know, I'll let him tell his story, and I hope you enjoy this interview, and I will be back next week. I'm going to write a bunch of jokes about this new Civil War, if I can. Uh, <laughs> all right, take care, be safe, and enjoy my interview with Luther Campbell. How are you? Can you hear me? I'm great. What about yourself? I'm doing okay. Thank you. And hey, thanks for doing this. This means a no lot problem. to me. Um, so I've been, you know, a fan of yours uh, ever since I was a kid, which is when you happen to get into trouble. And, you know, the whole point of this is that I, uh, nice, where is that? Orange Bowl. Oh, yeah, nice. Hurricane. <laughs> I'm an Ohio State fan, so we have a, a very famous game between us. Yeah, well, you cheated. <laughs> um, yeah, so, you know, in my opinion, um, you know, we hear a lot about Lenny Bruce. There's been books and movies and stuff, but I always think that your story is right up there in terms of free speech. So that's sort of what I want to kind of touch upon uh, during this interview, but... Um, to start, uh, a little bit about like your background. You were born and raised in Miami. Like, what was yes. Miami like back then? Yes, uh, born and raised in Liberty City, uh, 
Uh, I mean, you know, as a kid, you know, my mom and dad lived in Overtown. Well, my mom lived in Overtown. My dad was a Jamaican, so he came back and forth. And, uh, you know, born and raised from, you know, and we moved, eventually ended up one of the first African-American families to move to Liberty City. So, you know, uh, that's where we, that's where we were. Yeah. And I mean, like, um, what were you doing when you were younger? Were you big into sports? Were you? Uh... Big, yeah, yeah, real big in sports. Uh, I mean, um, football, played football, you know, and uh, was real kind of good. And I ended up getting <coughs> a bus to uh, South Beach, what y'all call it. We called it Miami Beach, being bust over there to play ball. Uh, and, uh, you know, when I was, you know, going over there to the beach and playing football, I eventually, you know, got in a DJ group, ghetto mm -hmm. style DJ, started DJ. And while I was in my later years in high school and then I stopped playing ball and I focused on that, got a little job at the hospital as a pot washer and I worked my way up to be a cook, still mm -hmm. DJing. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and then I became a big, big time DJ locally here in Miami. Yeah, I think that's um, something like I had to remember that, that you started out as a DJ and sort of promoter at first, right? Yeah, yeah. So where would you like normally DJ? What's that scene like back then? Well, back then I would DJ at parks, car washes. Uh, I didn't do no bar mitzvahs. <laughs> I did parties. I did wedding receptions. I did baby showers uh, <laughs> on the corner. You were available is what you're saying. I was fully I was <laughs> available for 50 bucks. Uh, give me $50 and we'll bring the DJ set over wherever it's a plug and we'll go to parks on the weekend and unscrew the light bulb and screw a light bulb in with a socket. I, I, we basically did it all, DJed everywhere. And what were you spinning back then? Oh man. It was mostly, uh, when we first started off, mostly, you know, Herbie Hancock, you know, uh, Olympic runners. Uh, it was, uh, you know, some, you know, some uh, Calypso because, you know, in Miami, it's not really the South, what people think it is. It's more of a melting pot mm -hmm. of uh, Bahamians, Jamaicans, Cubans, Dominicans, Puerto Ricans, it's all that in one, uh, so we kind of played that, a lot of reggae, a lot of reggae, uh, and a lot of, um, you know, whether it was Parliament, Funkadelics, you name it. And then hip hop came along. Uh, you know, I was probably one of the first guys to introduce hip hop uh, music to uh, to the good kids here in uh, Miami. So how did you do that? How did you get well, involved with all that? I mean, you know, you, you had, uh, you know, you had, it was still somewhat underground and the radio station wasn't really playing it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I was a part of this record pool called Jerry Java's Record Pool. And uh, where you pay your monthly fees <clears throat> and you'll get all the records from the record, from the uh, record company. So, you know, end up getting this, you know, these records from Sugar Hill and Enjoy Records and, you know, and Macola Records. And I would get those records and uh, sift through them and I always wanted to be the first person to play a record. So, mm -hmm. you know, I started hearing these these rhymes on a record. And uh, uh, 
eventually start playing it at, at the park in some of the skating rinks uh, and some of the high school dances that we were playing at. What was like one of the first records that really like, you know, made you, made you stand up and be like, oh, there's something here? One of the first records, oh man, Sugar Hill Gang, no yeah. doubt about it. No doubt about it, Sugar Hill Gang, broken glass everywhere. People <laughs> pissing on the stage, though, they just don't care. I mean, that was one of my favorites. Yeah, I mean, Furious Five, uh, Fantastic Four, mm-hmm. Divine Sound, Tila Rock, you know, Mantronics, mm-hmm. uh, uh, KRS One, uh, you name it. You know, uh, you name it, I spent it. Uh, original Concept, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. You know, and eventually, you know, we started spinning the music and uh, uh, we started spinning it. And, you know, I would then, you know, uh, take things a different level because I realized how many people I was spinning for over the weekend. You know, I would have at a high school dance, we would have about a thousand kids on a Friday. Then the next night, go to another high school, we have another 2,000. Then on a Sunday night, we have about 2,500 kids at a skating rink. Uh, and then the day and the Sunday before at the park, we'll probably have another 3,000. So I kind of realized how many people uh, I was spinning in the front of. So I would break records. You know, I pride myself on breaking the record. Uh, I would call the artists and say, look, I'm gonna make your record big in Miami because I'm gonna play it uh, at my parties. And uh, as long as you just give me a free show, and then the next show, I'll pay you the money that you want. Mm-hmm. Nice. So was the original, oh, real quick though, like how soon after you started spinning all this stuff, did you start seeing like groups pop up around Miami, like around you? Uh, well, most of the group, most of the groups were dance music. Everybody uh-huh. was in, it was the TK, it was all that kind of dance. It was freestyle and it was mostly dance groups that people wanted to be a part of dance groups. Okay. Uh, it was one group in particular, you know, they came in cause you know, at our parties, I used to make up these dances at the party like ghetto nasty. Mm-hmm. And then I play a song and people would dance to it without turn the pitch down low, I'd turn the pitch up high. And then I'll make this song, Throw the D. And so before Throw the D I made, which is a song that Two Lot Crew did, I made a yeah. song called, I made a, a, a dance called Ghetto Jump. So it was one one rap group that wanted to be rappers and and uh, and they came in and they said, oh, can we do the record? I was like, yeah, you can do a record out the song as long as you give me a free show. Mm-hmm. And uh, they eventually did the, the song use everything to sample that I used to, to sing the song in the uh, in the party and they did they did it on the record became a nice decent record locally mm-hmm. and they didn't do the they didn't give me the free show so that pissed me off yeah so were you then thinking like the route you might go is being a promoter was that, that yeah, was sort yeah. of your original right before so two life crew they they formed in California. Correct. How did how did you first come across them? Same thing, doing a show. Yes. Yeah. Uh, my whole my whole thing was being a pro- promoter. 
That was my whole thing. I never wanted to be a record executive producer, none of that. I just wanted to be a big time DJ, but then using DJ to then become a uh, concert promoter. I wanted to be like Ricky Walker, uh, who did all the uh, Fresh Festivals and, and Al Heyman, who did the Budweiser Superfest. That was my whole goal of, of being a, a great promoter. And mm -hmm. so I would bring these groups down, you know, on a lower level, doing them at, at the uh, skate rinks and eventually saving up my money to do big shows, which I ended up doing, but I lost my shirt uh, uh, doing big shows. Uh, but that was my whole thing. And then I brought the two live crew down and they started complaining. That was around the time mm -hmm. that I had did the ghetto junk record with these guys and they wouldn't do the free show. And so I was a little pissed off. And so I said, I'm gonna show them. And we made another record, which was Throw the D, which was a dance that I created at the party. And uh, the guys did the, did the song and they were at the same time complaining about you know, uh, being on this record label that wasn't doing nothing. So I, we did the song and I tried to shop it around to some local record labels and some of the record promoters that I knew and they didn't want to have nothing to do with it because they kind of considered it Miami music. And we put it out and it became a big, uh, a big successful hit. And when did you sort of become like the de facto leader of the, like, when did you start being on stage and being like that was a yeah that was a, another thing I did not want to do because <laughs> you know I'm a, I'm a DJ and I we, I do parties and I love DJing I love entertaining so I mean before I mean it was like because because our different in DJing versus uh, anywhere else is more call and response with DJing it's more like a hype man you know we hype up the party we talk through the throughout the record. You know, that's what we do. That's our unique style here in uh, in Florida. So we talk throughout the record and we talk trash with the record. We make the record talk for us. And so these guys were kind of boring on stage. And they were like, <laughs> can you do what you do while, the, while our music is going on? So I really, so it kind of really, we really kind of, I guess we invented uh, the hype man thing. So right. I was uh, this glorified hype man trying to make their shows a little more energetic. <laughs> they were a little boring. And uh, that's how I ended up in the group. And then, of course, they didn't start with the sexually explicit lyrics. I mean, was that, was that your sort yes. of, uh, yeah? What, yeah, what is yeah, yeah. See, I mean, when, you, when you're DJing all this music, you're bringing artists down. So most of the artists I was bringing down were coming from... Uh, New York, and uh, you know, I know how New York was. You know, they were like, hip hop is our music and nobody else's music. Because, you know, again, I would bring down artists from uh, Philly and Philly would tell me the beef between Philly and New York and California and everybody had this, these issues with each other uh, because New York, it was sacred, sacred to them, uh, the actual music. So. I said, okay, we're gonna have to do something different, you know, cause they did, you know, regular dance. One side of the record was a dance record beatbox mm -hmm. and the other side of the record was a conscience record uh, by this other member who was the original member in the group, uh, Yuri Vila, or this mm -hmm. song called Revolution. So that was, 
your first conscience record. It wasn't common. It was Yuri V. Lot of the two live crew. Mm -hmm. uh, and so he, his, his music was down that line. And, uh, mm -hmm. and I was like, if we're going to compete, you know, if I'm a, you know, we're going to do this, we're going to have to do something, something different. Instead of uh, sampling James Brown, we got to sample Dolomite or something. Yeah. So that was right down Mr. Mix Lane, you know, uh, who I don't think get as much credit as he need to get as being a great producer. Uh, so he, we just went in, we were like always on the same page and cooking up the music. Yeah, so almost to go back a little bit to your childhood, like what influenced like the lyrics, you know, because you say, you say Dolomite and, you know, I've always like seen your records as like an extension of like, you know, what they used to call like the party record, you know, like, like uh, Red Fox, you know, who I love. Yeah, that's, that's what it was. And that, and that, that was the whole thing. Cause the, the unique part about it, which made me and Mix click so much. Uh, one, these guys are coming, these guys are California guys coming down to Miami and they're trying to become a Miami group. And so now everything that we appreciated in music, everything that we appreciated in music, whether it was the samples of mass production or, or, or Herman Kelly and Life or whatever it may be, the samples we would use in the records. But then the, diff the thing that me and him had in common was my mama had a stash, my mom and dad had a stash of Leroy Skillet, Unester, Dolomite, uh, vinyls, you know, hidden up under the couch that we weren't supposed to get and I would be listening to it. And I'm and his mom and dad had the same thing going on in California. So that kind of uh was unique to link us up together. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean it was it was a, I mean it was a hell of a thing because you know I would come up with the concept of the record of a record, uh, whether it was a dance or whatever it may be. And then I would tell him the sample to use because, you know, we're talking about top Miami samples, unlike anywhere else that we play at our parties. Uh, and then he would use that. She would use that uh, and then go and, you know, cook up a Dolomite or something like that and be like, oh shit, yeah, that's hot. And so then we would get a record for instance, and then I'll say, okay, for instance, like me so horny, you know, I'm sitting there looking at Full Metal Jacket because I'm a, a army movie junkie. Mm -hmm. And I see the girl going there, oh, me so horny, me love you long. So I'm like, oh shit, we could put that on a record. And then and then I'm like, okay, what's the top sample that people are familiar with, uh, which is, which what is the top song? So at that point it was Firecracker mass production that we that I would jam at at the parties and people loved it so 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 good you know and <laughs> and so I was like uh all right let's do do take mass production and we're gonna do this we're gonna have this girl do say me so horny and uh and then I would get with the guys and say okay all right, you talking about being horny and you're talking about being horny all the time so you write about being horny and you write about being horny and that's how the records were created that's uh, great. Yeah. Um, so what was like the initial reaction? Like when you started playing this out for people and you, you, you began like selling them out of your trunk, right? Before you ever. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah what I had, were people I, saying? They, they obviously I, never heard I, something like this before. People losing their mind because what happened <laughs> was 
I guess I guess kids kids was getting it because it was rap music it was just being introduced, but then it was this was some different shit. Ain't nobody was cussing on the record. Everybody was talking about, you know, the bang bang boogie and all that mm-hmm. and break dancing. So now here you got, you know, all this uh, all this satire. You got all this comedy and and all that going to music. So that like really just threw people off. It became a a product of 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 being of rebelling against the system. Oh, Saying, yeah. I, wanna, I wanna listen to this shit here, you know, and so we just the more people came after us, the more we pushed the envelope. The more yeah. they made me more creative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean that's a, that's you know somehow your music found your way to Columbus, Ohio and and me and my friends when we were like eleven years old. And it was funny because you mentioned the record club my friends and I used to have like a blank tape club where we would give each other blank tapes and then record stuff like two live crew, two short. But I remember I would have to leave more mainstream like artists on the thing in case my parents found your tape. So I would like leave like Mariah Carey. And then when I wanted to listen to something, I'd have to be like, Oh yeah, Mariah Carey, that's two live crew. You know, like I had like boys to men was too short or whoever. But so when did you know, like, was there a, a moment like you sensed like, oh, this is getting bigger? Because I mean, you guys released, was it Move something that you think like, oh, this is growing bigger than even like the local scene? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, because what was happening, being that Miami is a breakout market, mm-hmm. tourist destination, and a lot of people coming down with us on spring break, uh, a holiday weekend, and the records, music is being played in these clubs. And you know, Miami is exotic in itself. Um, you know, through college students taking the music back to their their their, their city saying, oh, this is the shit from Miami. And then at the same time, people from Miami taking the music back to their colleges and say, this is our music, play it at the party. And then when the record came on, automatically if it was cuss words in it, the college students gravitated to it, no matter what it was, because it was again, form of rebellion. And um, and that's how it kind of broke out across the country. And what were like the first inklings that like, you know, people might be coming after us. People might not be happy about this. Oh, when uh, parents, Parents and PTA organizations in Alabama start sending letters. I was like, oh shit, it's getting ready to get interesting. Uh, the music, you know, being played up in there and the parents complaining that uh, other kids are listening to the music, kids, their kids, and how do we stop them from doing it? And so then that's when I created the parental advisory sticker. And then I created the whole fact that doing a clean version and a dirty virgin because we were the only one doing that uh, mm-hmm. because of the, you know, if a radio played the clean version, I didn't want to trick people into thinking that they were getting that. And so, you know, once that happened in before you know it, now you got this focus on the family, um, family Christian coalitions. And then the big one was typical Al Gore wife putting us on this famous blacklist with, Guns and Roses and mm-hmm. Ice Tea and everybody else, uh, and uh, that that circulating around to everybody kind of really took it out of proportion. 
but those you were your own label is that correct correct so do you think like so basically you only had to answer to yourself whatever kind of stuff you wanted to put out right correct I and was do you the only, think only real record label everybody else I, that's why i never realized why i never understand why why they give everybody a title of a record label when you're not a record label you know you mm-hmm. you 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 know they give like bad boy records they give you a title of a record label that's not a record label that's a a production company, they take the records and they produce the records and give it to the record label. The record label then manufactures and distribute the, the records. So I always, like, why everybody get a title of record label? They shouldn't have it. If you don't manufacture, market it, distribute it, do the full nine yards uh, with a marketing plan, then you should be considered, you should be considered what you are, a production company. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I always, thought, I always thought that was funny. Yeah. So then were these uh sort of organizations were they sending the mail straight to you were they just saying like we're we're on straight we're on me. you yeah straight to me because it's you know again you only had to answer to yourself and I, I think it's interesting what would you know so many people now just cave to whatever the executive thinks yeah yeah uh it, it, it that's that's what happened and that and that's probably why I mean, I only was able to get one major record deal. Was it one, one or two, two? But what the one major record deal that I really wanted, uh, because I always saw myself as okay. All right, I'm to this point in selling records, uh, selling, manufacturing, marketing, distributing them, and then when I went and did the deal with Atlantic Records, uh, that was my way of okay. I'm. You know, even though I own the masters and everything, that was my way of now segueing into, you know, hopefully becoming a uh, a record executive running a major record label. But again, that's during the time uh, I did. Uh, my first album with them was banned in the USA. So it was a little too controversial for, for a major record label. And it was a lot of pushback with a lot of different things that we were saying in the record. Because I think um, they had another artist on their label, uh, Milk and Gears. And they said, I think they made some gay comment, which uh, kind of threw them in a whirlwind. And then they just signed the nasty boy up. Uh, and what we were getting ready to do. And so that kind of threw that whole thing, a monkey wrench in that. And I, I, I really think uh, that prevented me from, uh, that's when I ended up getting blackballed and that prevented me from being the record label executive of a major record company that I always wanted to do. Gotcha. All right, so then, uh, you know, like I said, we were getting, you were getting letters from these places. And then when did you like sort of find out people like Navarro, whose name, first name I forget, but uh, Nick. Nick Navarro, yeah, who was the sheriff at the time in Broward County. When, uh, were you aware that he was going around? And I, I, I think people forget, like they used to arrest uh, record store clerks for selling your record. Yeah, they arrested I, this guy named Charles Friedman in uh, <clears throat> Fort Lauderdale uh, after you know, he, what Nick Navarro, you know, he was your first uh, reality TV star mm-hmm. for these cops yeah. type movie guy, TV show guy. He was running around with Geraldo uh, doing all these big drug buses. So, you know, at here we are at the forefront of free speech and 
doing all this fighting. So he ended up going and uh, locking up this guy, Charles Friedman, giving him a warning, then went and locked him up. Before he knew he locked him up. And then uh, now we're in court fighting whether or not the record is uh, is uh, deemed to be obscene. At, if the record is obscene and the judge deemed it obscene and we had to get it overturned in the appeals court. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had to get it overturned in the appeals court. And while we were getting it overturned in the appeals court, then we went and did a concert because I right down the street from the courthouse. Right. Did a party of show in a nightclub and got it locked up. And so then now we had to uh, get the case overturned plus on top of it, fight this uh, charge of singing explicit lyrics. And at the same time, I got this other Acuff Rose versus Luther Campbell uh, uh, parody, uh, you know, lawsuit going all the way up to the Supreme Court. So I had really three or four cases going on at the same time. How did you juggle all this mentally? I mean, it just sounds like a, a and run the record company, yeah, and yeah. run a record company, yeah. I had no responsibilities at home, so I had no wife, I had no kids, <laughs> I had nothing, just just me and my dog, and uh, you know, I I'm already nocturnal already as it is, so I I really, you know, unlike anybody else that would have to go home uh, with a family and tend to the family, it was just me. So, you know, it was me and I. I worked a lot and worked hard. <clears throat> so it was, you know, you know, when you when you get a family, you know, you have to do family things. And so at that time it was me, so it was it was no set hours. Uh I had a lot of conversations with the dog uh, <laughs> by the pool about uh where we at. And so that's you know, that's how I juggled it all. But were you facing jail time for the obscenity stuff? Only facing jail time after we uh, when we went and uh, sung the song, sung the you know sung the song that was deemed obscene by the federal judge. Uh, that was the only case that we were facing jail time. But all the but the parody case going to the Supreme Court, no. Uh, whether the music. Was was mute when they deemed the records obscene. That wasn't jail time. It was a matter of them deeming it obscene, leaving it leaving it uh, as a case law, as precedent to be able to then, you know, uh, deem any other rap record or record with explicit lyrics as obscene, and then being able to take those records off the shelf. So I didn't want that to happen to no other uh, artists going forward because I always looked at the big picture. What is this doing? Where is it going? If I don't fight, then it becomes precedent and case law. So when you have case law, then what ends up happening, and this is law. You know, if you sing expressive lyrics on a rap record, then we could take it off the shelf and then we can lock the artists up after we take it off the shelf. So it was very important that I got that overturned for the for music, for the music industry. I was looking at it from that standpoint. And I was spending my money and Nobody was coming to to the aid. I was going to say, no, did anybody come to like? Nobody. nobody. No, they were talking shit. They would, I mean, everybody was like cheering the courts on, all the other rap artists, like hoping that, you know, but not knowing the significance. And I always looked at most of those folks being ignorant to the fact. But then now, 
people are now realizing, you know, after they do the research, they have a little appreciation of what uh, of what I did and the money that I spent to uh, de- to defend hip hop. Yeah, it's surprising that nobody would come to your defense it, on in any music genre and any sort of just across the board. You think somebody would, you know, see the bigger picture like you did, and, and it had to be frustrating. I'm sure because at the time, you know, Andrew Dice Clay is selling out Madison Square Garden, and you have yeah. to look at that like, what what's the difference here? You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. Well, I mean, the difference was I wasn't protected by a major record label because mm-hmm. I never, like I said, I only had one record deal, which was short lived. Uh, but for the most part, all those controversies, I was I was the owner and the manufacturer of all the product uh, that was going in and going out, so I wasn't really protected by it the powers that be. So that made me a very easy target. Mm-hmm. Um, is it true that the jury, when they found you not guilty, they wrapped? They wrapped this, the, what, what is it called? The, whatever juries no, read? No, they, they laughed. They laughed. <laughs> they, well, it, I mean, within the case, when the, when the, uh, put it this way, when they were, when, when, uh, when the, one of the prosecutors was 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 rapping the lyrics, he was not rapping it, but he was just saying the lyrics. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it kind of proved the case that we that we had. What we said is all fun and games. It's not anything to hurt anybody's feelings. So then the guy was he would recite the lyrics to the jury, and yeah, they did laugh. They would like they didn't they they asked the judge to go in the back so they can laugh. Because everybody, you know, everybody was sitting there turning red face, and the, the, the white people were turning purple, and you no know, red, and the black people were turning purple, and you know, I was like, "Oh shit, I'm going to jail." Uh, and then they asked to be excused, and ended up going in the back, and all you could hear was uh, people dying laughing in there. Mm-hmm. I was like, "Oh, we won this shit." <laughs> when did uh, Henry Louis Gates get involved? Didn't he? Uh... Yes, he uh, te- he testified at the uh, he testified at the uh, appeals hearing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Henry, uh, Doctor Gates, I think yeah, he was at the appeals hearing. I don't I don't know whether he was at the original hearing when they deemed it obscene, but yeah, we brought in the big guns <laughs> at the uh, appeals hearing. And what did he say? Do you remember what was his sort of defense? Oh, I don't remember. I know he. I, I know he. He explained it so eloquently. I was like, "Oh, you know, I, I gotta, I gotta go back and look at." It. Mm-hmm. I really, yeah, I really need to do that. But I know he, he, he uh, framed it up into a. Uh, he framed it up as a work of art, which yeah. is what it was, you know. And, and and he did it in an eloquent way that uh, that the court uh, uh, took it as an artistical. Uh, piece of is uh, no different than you know uh, the Mona Lisa or the statues of the naked men. Uh, he framed it up in that in that sense. Right, and maybe hopefully this will jog your memory because I just clicked on uh, Wikipedia real quick. He sort of places it in um, you know in, in the roots of the African American community, sort of the storytelling techniques and stuff like that. Do you have any anything to build off that? I mean, like. Obviously, I don't have that perspective, sort of, but I find that very, very interesting. Yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, when you, you know, um, you know, and I want to think it was it was him as well as my brother. Like I remember him, he would fly Winnie Mandela and nice Nelson Mandela around because he owned his private airline service and uh, and uh, and uh, Winnie Mandela would tell my brother, and they would have a conversation about me and all this trouble I was in, and she told him. Uh, which kind of correlated with what Gates was saying. She was like, you know, that type of music with the type of beat, that's how we communicate through through tribes. We would go and the women would go to a different tribe and they would dance uh with beats with that with the same uh with the same tempo beats with the same tempo and the women would dress obviously half naked or naked. So it was like a part of our heritage. And so when uh, he would tell me that, and then Gates mentioned it, it was like, this is actually a part of our heritage. What we're doing is no different than what uh, uh, our our ancestors in Africa was doing. Yeah. Um, so when you released uh, Band in the USA, one of my favorite songs off that record is uh, Simply fuck Martinez. <laughs> well, was there and yeah, was there any uh, pushback? I mean, that's such a great move to put that down on wax forever. No, because I I kind of protected myself. By the end, I was a fucking lawyer. Uh, <laughs> you know, I I went and found some kid named Martinez and say I'm gonna say fuck you and I want you to write a release. And then I found another kid. Yeah, I mean, you can find a Navarro on any corner in Miami. Or Martinez, so I then had them sign a release saying I'm saying fuck you, so it wasn't. I didn't want to get uh, sued for defamation, mm -hmm. and, uh, and I just went to town on both of them. Yeah, well played, well played. Um, what was it like to ask Bruce Springsteen for the music? Was he? Oh, that was that was cool. Yeah, that was cool. Yeah, I had this one guy who was working for me at the time who knew him. This one guy was doing my foreign uh, deals named David Shacklin, and he kind of hooked me up with him. Uh, no, it was it was Tooch Aram, uh, the big executive at at, uh, at uh, Atlantic Records at the time, and Tooch knew knew uh, him. Uh, Bruce Springsteen, and they put him on the phone with me because I I wanted his his blessing. I didn't want to do a, a parody. I wanted to be able to use the song with his blessing. And so we uh, they linked up and I talked to him for a few minutes and he believed in what was going on because it was, everybody was talking about it. You know, uh, uh, at that time, most people. And so I would say if anybody did support us, it was Bruce Springsteen. So I can't say fully, but nobody in the hip hop industry. So he gave me the, the rights to use it. And then we just went and uh, did the song. Yeah, it's such a great song. Well, you know, um, what are you? What are your thoughts, you know, looking back on this 30 years later? I mean, uh, again, I think it's such an important story, especially in sort of today's culture, uh, when everyone's calling each other out for any sort of blue joke. And, you know, I just I can't imagine if you guys came up today. I mean, people, people's heads would just explode. But like looking back on this, I mean, 
What's your perspective on it? I mean, it was, it was, looking back on it, it was, it was historic. It was, it was, it was crazy. It was a, it was a serious ride. I can't wait, wait to do the, the movie and the docuseries and the TV series and all that, because I want people to know the story because I think it's such a very, very important story for hip hop. It sits right there in, you know, in the, in the, in the discoveries of hip hop with Cool Herc and all them. Because this was the, this was the uh, evolution of it, mm-hmm. uh, in my opinion. Now, and it was—I mean, it was a wild ride. I mean, we—you're talking everything, but the kitchen sink thrown at you uh, during a time where, you know, hip hop was transforming, you know, crossing over into uh, into the white kids' households and the mothers not understanding it, and then you got <laughs> rock and roll, and you got country and now the kids coming on with this, it was it was uh, not understanding it, and then now you have the social shit getting into it, and before you know it, you know, yeah, I'm the poster guy of the wrong type of hip hop, <laughs> you know. And then you ran for mayor after that, right? Is there any more uh, political aspirations? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, I ran for mayor. You know, my the whole thing with running for mayor was uh, my whole thing was, uh, you know, Obama had got everybody. Everybody got excited. I mean, shit, babies, eighteen year olds. Everybody had a voter's registration card, so everybody was excited. So when you get a voter's registration card, obviously, you know, you have that card, and it don't vanish. It's not a one election card, <laughs> so. I figured I was like, you know, here's the perfect opportunity. You know, the uh, the mayor had got impeached and he stepped down and it was a special election. I was like, well, this is the perfect opportunity. I could go run in a special election. I don't have to run a full-fledged campaign and a full-fledged two or three years running. You know, this would be a six-month deal. Uh, I already got name recognition, you know, and uh, at first it started out, all right, let's do it you know, to cause some shit. And then before you know it, it became, oh, once I start doing the uh, what, the town hall meetings and the debates and things like that, I was like, I'm smarter than these fucking guys. Yeah. I'm a businessman. They never had a job in their life. You know uh-huh. what I'm saying? Why, why are they smart? They're not smarter than me. They were all working for government. You know, and so here I'm the businessman. Uh, I guess Trump probably got my idea. God, <laughs> Jesus, I'm responsible for that shit. So I'm the <laughs> businessman trying to be the mayor. Uh, uh, then, you know, as it went on, then I started polling high. Uh, the numbers, I became polling at second, getting ready to be in the runoff. Uh, and then it was polling in between, anywhere between second and third, and this shit was going crazy. Now I'm down to, to to the county hall meeting with the meeting meeting with the the uh, county manager and the staff it's like oh shit getting ready for the transition so it's like I'm meeting I'm like oh lord hold on one second oh I've become the mayor I can't go to the strip club and I'm sitting there like this shit getting real and then the police cars sitting outside my house what the fuck is this and I'm like oh this is getting real real you know, and uh, 
So I started thinking about it. I was like, you know, my whole idea of doing it was build a, a base, which ended up building a base, mm -hmm. a constituent base that votes religiously, you know, and I always said, okay, I don't have to be the king. I can be the king maker, but I need to get this base of voters, black, white, green, purple, you know, uh, I need to be able to, you know, uh, have a newsletter. So I started writing for the Miami New Times and I've been writing for them ever since where I could then use that as a form of passing out the information as to where I'm at mentally. And when it comes to an election, I could be the one that uh, take this block of voters to endorse someone based on their issues and what they think, uh, as well as the community issues and, and make and get people elected. And that's what I've been doing. So I only, it's probably only one person that I, I endorsed that did not win. Uh, and that race, I kind of regret. <laughs> when I did endorse the guy, shit, he had all kind of federal investigations right after it. His wife was federally investigated and everything in the world. So he was, if he won, if he won, he was going to prison. <laughs> anyway, so that was the only one that I, that I endorsed that I did not win. Like right now, I do Sunday Zooms, Sunday and Wednesday Zooms, and I do forum, forums where I uh, talk to different candidates about the issues because there is a mayor race and a commission race uh, going on now. And, you know, and everybody comes after me uh, to get my endorsement. Uh, so I just endorse uh, a gentleman Suarez to be the mayor for the mayor of Miami uh, Dade County. That's a big race. That's a big race because that's nine million dollar budget that he will be control of, and it'd be a strong. It's a strong mayor situation. So the other candidates kind of start crying and sending love letters at five in the morning. <laughs> I'm sorry I didn't pick them. So they got an uphill battle to win. Uh, but it'd it, it be, it's interesting. It'd be interesting. So I, I take different races and I end up doing a slate. Uh, and most of my candidates normally win. When did you start coaching football? Man, about 15, 16 years ago. When my career kind of died down, I went out back to my youth program, Living City Occupants, and I started coaching. And uh, once I started coaching out there, then I started getting more creative. Okay, all right, we got to monitor these kids. I got to get these kids um, uh, into college and everything like that. So then I ended up going to high school and uh, start, you know, we just spread it out, program out to different high schools. And uh, it became a, a hobby of getting them in school, of getting kids in all different types of colleges, whether it was Ohio, some went to Ohio States and the Alabamas, and others went to like, uh, others went to places like, you know, uh, shit, uh, Howard University and FAMU and things and schools like that. So, I mean, I, you know, it was a, more of getting a kid in college, using, using it as a tool to get them in college. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I follow you on Instagram and I saw you, uh, post a little something about the NBA and the NFL. What are your thoughts on, should, should they be playing? What do you, what do you think? Uh, no, I don't think they should be playing. Uh, I don't think they should be playing. And the reason why 
I don't think they should be playing. Is because, I mean, we're in a, we're, I think uh, everything that's been going on is more of a show and tell situation right now. You know, uh, I mean, I just got off a forum uh, with some intellectual people talking about, you know, explicit, uh, intensive bias and all these different things. I mean, is the bottom line is, I think everything happens for a reason. Colin Kaepernick happened for a reason. Craig Hodges happened in the NBA for a reason. Donald Sterling happened uh, in the NBA for a reason. Um, the blackballing of you know any African Americans who took a knee. Jerry Jones, you know, telling his players if you take a knee, you're gonna you can get off my team. Uh, Trump and his taking a knee, uh, fighting for systemic racism, the media uh, taking Colin Kaepernick's words and taking them out of, uh, out of context. I mean, you go all the way back to the famous picture of Muhammad Ali and uh, Jim Brown and, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar standing at this, this meeting of uh, trying to get Muhammad Ali, uh, the government to allow him to box because he dodged the draft. I mean, uh, I thought this would have been a very historic moment, similar to that where you would have Floyd Mayweather, LeBron James, and Colin Kaepernick, and recreating that same picture, recreating that same picture to avoid systemic racism uh, in the country and, and the acts being more. So when I go back to, you know, what I'm originally saying is you, the NBA had an opportunity to change its ways. The NBA should have, should have went and, and, and said, we had a law, a $40 million lawsuit with Craig Hodges and, and Mark Mood, where we blackballed a guy for praying. Uh, and we blackballed a guy for giving the president a letter, you know, when they visited the White House after winning a championship about systemic racism and oppression of African-Americans, you blackball him for that. You never straighten that out. Now you fast forward to uh, Colin Kaepernick with the same situation in touch with his heritage, as well as some other African-American players, Kenny Stills playing with the Miami Dolphins. He says, uh, Jay-Z is a sellout or whatever he may have said and then the coach then mocks him by playing Jay-Z records all day to then turn around two weeks later and cut him or trade him to, to Houston. All these things were, were, were put in place by the man upstairs for the NFL and for these billionaires to make it right. They had that opportunity and they took a guy like Jay-Z and they promoted him in the front of all of us and said, we got the, the, the hip hop kid from the hood and the hip hop kid from the hood. We are embracing what he's saying and we're gonna bring him and he's gonna be the bridge between these suits and, and the community and that didn't work. Uh, so you had to, the whole debacle and then the other narrative of using these guys on these pundits on ESPN like Stephen A. Smith and, and these other uh, African-American pundits to, to change, to try and change the narrative as if the people were stupid 
you know, that didn't work. And, and so now you came up to this boiling point that they thought it was okay because they paraded these so-called African-American, so-called leaders before the people and the people, they didn't realize the people wasn't hearing that. The people in the barbershop said, this dude is a sellout. That lady is a sellout. We don't like Gail. We don't like Oprah. We don't like, and so we were saying that on the ground floor, but they didn't believe it because, because they have implicit bias with, with the understanding that, oh, we got them. We control the narrative and we control them. So when I saw the kids standing up on CNN, I said, if ESPN would have been downtown Atlanta, they would have been standing up on, on the statue of ESPN because they get it. You can't trick the brains of young people as well as the people. So, you know, it, it, it consistently still goes on. So when I look at it and I say, what a coincidence. They were talking about not playing and then LeBron James get a big contract with ABC. Hmm. Ah, here we go again. You know, uh, let's, who, who and what person had what number an influential person has? And that's what the whole thing is. And so until they right the wrongs, and that's why I say they shouldn't play, it's, the acts should be not, we're gonna give you a hundred million dollars deal at ABC because we know ABC is, is Disney and Disney owns ESPN and ESPN has all these billion dollar contracts with the NFL, the NCAA and, and, and ABC is biggest, you know, has this billion dollar contract with NBA. Uh, that just didn't, that still, that didn't resonate, which a lot of people think that if we pay off, if we do something with LeBron James and then they do play, that that's the remedy. That's not the remedy. I mean, we give uh, the quarterback from uh, the black quarterback from from uh, Kansas City a boatload of money. Nobody in the streets is talking about that. But to them, they always think that the buy the buy is that everybody has a number, and we could buy our way back into the good graces of African Americans as well as the people. And people ain't hearing that shit no more, you know. So the buy is. You got to do something historic. Like, you got to give us two teams in the NBA, black owned, um, black and Hispanic owned. You got to give us two NBA teams, black and Hispanic owned. We don't consider Michael Jordan as one of us. Uh, and the same thing when it comes to an NFL team, we need two teams, black and Hispanic owned group. And now that's when you that's when you're saying you're being serious, but giving us a billion dollar deal, a hundred million dollar TV deal to one of our guys who already got five hundred million dollars in his bank account, that's not that's that don't cure the breach. Right. Um, I think we have to wrap it up. I think you have another thing to get to. So I really appreciate it. Um, it was an honor to talk to you. Just want to ask one more question, real quick. Are you gonna make any more music? Any new music? Yeah, yeah. I, I, let me tell you, I make music all the time, but now I'm scared to go in the studio. I went in the studio the other day, made a song, and, and my dad going engineer got sick. Uh, so yeah, I'm a, uh, you know, I, I make music all the time. I just keep it to myself. <laughs> all right. And, you know, my dancers, you know, because I always tour before this COVID. You know, I do a lot of concerts around the country. I actually work more than I worked when I was with Two Live Crew. So. Um, <laughs> which I guess everybody want to hear the music. So 
So I'm always in the studio messing around, doing music. You know, I have a few artists that I'm working with that I got the bug now because I, you know, the catalog, I sell the catalog. Uh, we still function as a record company with the catalog. And now I'm producing new artists. You know, I got a couple artists that I'm working with. But as far as me, I always do music. Um, you know, I got one song I'm excited about with this one artist because she loves it. And uh, we'll probably end up putting that out. Instead of uh, all the guys sampling me, uh, I'll sample myself and put it on one of my artist songs. I'm excited to hear. You Real quick, what's an artist we should know about? Blue. Blue. Blue is, is a young lady named Blue from Miami. She's uh, incredible. She she reminds me a lot of uh, Lauren Hill uh, okay. because she can sing and she can rap. I mean, she's versatile, very rangy at what she does. Uh, Blue is Blue is gonna be uh, she's gonna be hot, you know. Not your uh, I mean, she looks great, uh, but she's a real artist. And any, any artist that I ever dealt with, whether it was Pitbull or H Town. Or, Poison Clan, any of these type of artists, they have to be a real true artist for me. I don't like, I can't deal with manufactured artists where they, you know, you have to be able to write, you have to be able to produce, you have to be able to do everything and, you know, and uh, freestyle at the drop of the dime. So she's a true blue artist. And I, I think she's going to be uh, big. Great. I'll check her out. Thanks so much. Thanks for doing okay. this, Uncle Luke. I appreciate it. Be safe. Thank Take you. Care. You too.